Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Sometimes the most important realities around us are the ones that we really take for granted. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Have you ever wondered why people in some countries dress similarly, but people in others play up their unique style? Or why trains in countries like Japan almost always run on time? But here in the U.S., 20 to 30 percent of the trains on the busiest Amtrak lines run late. Or why people in different states have completely different reactions to being insulted. Or why some people followed guidelines around masking and social distancing and some people refused. It comes down to culture. And of course, we talk about culture a lot on this show as a primary driver of political conflict and power struggle between groups. But today, I want to go even deeper and discuss some groundbreaking work that offers what I think is an extraordinarily useful way of reading and understanding the cultural landscape political fights and all. My guest today is celebrated cultural psychologist Michelle Gelfand. Michelle is a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and a professor of psychology by courtesy at Stanford University. She studies the evolution of culture and the multi-level consequences for human groups. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the National Academy of Sciences. And she's the author of Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, tight and loose cultures and the secret signals that direct our lives. Michelle, thank you for making the time and welcome to Politicology. We've been waiting a long time for this. It's so great to be here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right. So before we get into the idea, um, can you give our listeners just a maybe a quick tour of the journey that brought you to 
psychology in the first place? What what is the background that you brought to this this question and this research? And then we'll get into the 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 idea. You know, I've been really fascinated by um, the phenomenon of culture. Uh, because it's simultaneously omnipresent. It's all around us all the time, 24-7, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. And it affects everything from our nations to our neurons. But it's invisible, and we totally take it for granted, and it drives so much of our behavior. It's kind of like the story of two fish where, who are swimming around. They pass by another fish who says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they swim on, and the one says to the other, what the heck is water? <laughs> It's a really simple story, but it makes a profound point, which is that sometimes the most important realities around us are the ones that we really take for granted. And for fish, that's water. But for humans, that's culture. And so I was pre-med. I went to Colgate University. I'm a New Yorker, as you can probably detect from my You've caught on, yeah. <laughs> um, and I was pre-med and I was, um, you know, classic New Yorker, you know, the New Yorker cartoon where it's basically like New York, we acknowledge New Jersey. That's a big deal. And then there's kind of the rest of the world. <laughs> and uh, that little bubble got broken when I went abroad for a semester to London. Um, and I remember being totally kind of wigged out by all the different sounds and sights and uh, just differences in culture. And I remember calling my father, Marty from Brooklyn, and just saying to him, oh, it's really strange, all these cultural differences. And and it's even weird that people go from London to Paris or to Amsterdam just for the weekend. And he said something really important. He said, well, imagine like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania. And I thought, wow, Pop, that is a fantastic metaphor. And literally, it's a true story. The next day, I booked a trip to Egypt, this kind of low-budget tour to Egypt. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, it's like going from New York to California, Pop. And it was there in my travels throughout Egypt and around the world that I realized, you know, I really don't understand this powerful force of culture. So I actually switched gears from pre-med into the field of cross-cultural psychology. Uh, I packed my bags to go to Champaign-Urbana to work with the founder of the field, Harry Triandis. Because I wanted to use the tools of science to understand culture, uh, why it evolves, what are the consequences for human groups, for politics, for organizations, for our daily lives. And so I developed a, a culture lab, um, first at University of Maryland for many years, a proud TERP, uh, and now at Stanford. And, and the group is really interdisciplinary. We try to bring in all sorts of methods from experiments to neuroscience to linguistic analyses and even computational models to study all things culture. So that's the kind of background. Um, about why I got into this. And, and the book, uh, we should note for our listeners, because we've talked about, we've talked about some of these figures uh, quite a lot uh, with other psychologists, but the, it, it has received praise from, you know, titans of the field, like Steven Pinker and, and Adam Grant and Robert Cialdini, like the godfather, <laughs> right? Uh, Cialdini. That's how I think of him anyway. So I, I just want to underscore the work really is groundbreaking. And so before we get into the main idea of tight, tight and loose cultures, why don't you explain the evolution of that framework? Yeah, you know, if you travel around the world, you notice some really interesting contrasts. Like if you go to Singapore, which is called the fine country, you'll notice there's a lot of punishments for seemingly small things like bringing gum into the country or not flushing the toilet in public settings or even walking in front of your curtains naked at night can land you a fine in Singapore, just letting your listeners know that. Uh, and in other contexts like New Zealand, you see lots of latitude. You see people walking barefoot in banks and they might be lighting couches on fire and they have their own national wizard that just retired. <laughs> you see all sorts of contrasts around the world. You mentioned some of them, including, you know, when I'm in Germany, people tend to wait patiently on the street corners, even if there's no cars in tow. Whereas in New York City, my 
my beloved <laughs> home state. You know, you see people jaywalking all the time. And this reflects something really fundamental about human groups. And that is to say that they vary in how strictly they adhere to social norms. And social norms are these unwritten rules for behavior. They're uh, sometimes get more elaborated into codes and laws. Uh, but we all have social norms. We're actually an ultra normative species. Uh, we follow norms all the time. In fact, they're one of our best inventions. I, I would nominate them as one of humans' greatest inventions because they help us to predict each other's behavior. They help us coordinate our actions. And you can imagine um, a thought experiment of what would the world be like without social mm. norms. You know, people driving on either side of the street or stealing each other's food off each other's plates in restaurants uh, or having sex everywhere. You know, like, there's a reason why we don't do that because we develop social norms to help regulate behavior, to help each other coordinate. And what's fascinating is that groups all have social norms, but we vary in how much we abide by them, how much we enforce them. Uh, and this is what we describe as the difference between tight and loose cultures. It's actually not a new concept. Uh, Herodotus, the father of history, was talking about it with different language uh, in his uh, travelogue, The Histories. Um, but we tried to really study this construct and understand its psychology. Um, you know, for example, what we found is that some cultures around the world, like Japan or Singapore, uh, Austria, tend to veer tight. Other cultures like Brazil and Greece and the U.S. in general tend to veer loose. Of course, you know, all cultures have tight and loose elements, but we can quantify how strict or permissive groups are. And then we could see, wait, why do these develop in the first place? Why do these differences evolve? Like, what's their function? Um, and, and what are the consequences? All cultures have strengths and liabilities. How can we kind of think about this and measure it? And, and does this vary across different levels of analysis from the nation to the neuron? And these are kind of questions we've been asking in our lab um, for the last 10, 15 years. So you've come up with a rigorous methodology to quantify these things that otherwise can sound kind of fuzzy as concepts. Is that accurate? That's right. So, you know, we try to use multiple methods to measure this, but in the first um, stab at trying to just understand this construct, we just simply ask people around the world about the level of norm strength in their cultural context. And we also ask them how permissive it is to do all sorts of things in different contexts, like is it to argue or eat in a bank or hug in a library or sing in a library? Like You can quantify how strict or permissive our situations Strict situations restrict the range of behavior that's seen as appropriate. If you see people shouting and singing in libraries, you might kind of pause and even give them some pretty negative feedback. And that is to say that all cultures have strict and permissive situations. And we as humans can navigate them endlessly or, you know, and effortlessly. Uh, but we, what we know is that some cultures have stricter rules across situations. We call them tight cultures. And others have more permissiveness. If you think about it as a metaphor, think about what it'd be like to live your life as if you're in a job interview or, or a library a lot of your life. You know, you need to cultivate certain psychological attributes to fit into and maintain the situations as compared to cultures where you might feel like you're in a public park a lot, <laughs> you know, where there's a lot of latitude. And so we can quantify this with surveys, with computational models, and, and so forth. And what we wanted to see is, can we understand why do these differences exist? And one of the things that we thought, we went into the study thinking, is that maybe there's good reasons why their tight cultures versus loose cultures evolve. And one of the factors that we found consistently is that the degree to which cultures have a lot of threat, like chronic threat in their histories, tends to predict tightness. And the logic is really pretty simple. If you have a lot of threat, whether it's from mother nature, think chronic natural disasters or famine, 
or from humans. Uh, think about how many times your nation has been potentially invaded. Like the U.S. has not been constantly invaded by Mexico and Canada. My daughter asked me that some years ago when she was like five. Um, or think about chronic pathogen outbreaks that cultures might have to vary, deal with around the world. The simple rule is that when you have a lot of threat, you need rules to coordinate. Rules have that kind of coordination function to help people to survive. Uh, you don't want people misbehaving in these kind of chaotic contexts. So that's what we studied. We looked at how basically how cultures varied on natural disasters, on pathogen outbreaks over the last, you know, uh, 100 years. We looked at how many times cultures have been invaded uh, or potentially invaded by their neighbors. Um, and we found a consistent connection between the degree to which cultures have threat and the degree of tightness. So one of the examples that that makes me think of from 2020 is uh, how stark the differences were between the way Asian cultures dealt with the pandemic and the way Western cultures dealt with it. And, uh, you know, it, it seemed almost it set aside the authoritarianism of the Chinese government, for example, but that, but the people as a culture seems to have, um, more group cohesion when it came to when it came to wearing masks because that was a thing that had had already been part of the culture right can you talk about the differences between um the tight the spectrum of tight and loose and so and how these groups can have both tight and loose dimensions to them at the same time yeah this is a really great question it sort of I want to broaden out and, and say that there's a real trade-off that Titan loose cultures provide for human groups. I mentioned that earlier. And one of them is what we call the order versus openness trade-off. And this is going to kind of help us address like what happened during this mess of COVID. Uh, and, and what we found um, before COVID is that tight cultures had a lot of order. They have less crime. They have more synchrony. Even clocks in city streets are more tightly aligned in tight cultures. They're off by milliseconds. We've shown this with some of our data. Whereas in loose cultures, like you're not totally sure, like in Brazil or Greece, like what time is it? Like the clocks are off by quite a bit in some contexts. And and tight cultures, because they have a lot stricter rules, tend to have more self-control. People are socialized from a very early age to manage their impulses, to fit into those norms. And loose cultures struggle with order. Uh, they have a lot more crime in general, with less synchrony, less coordination, and they have more self-regulation kinds of problems, including debt and alcoholism and even obesity compared to tight cultures. On the flip side, loose cultures corner the market on openness. Um, they have much more tolerance, relatively speaking. Um, they have more creativity, idea generation, and so forth. So um, these are things that tight cultures struggle with. They struggle with tolerance. They struggle with creativity. Um, and this really kind of uh, feeds into your question, which is, you know, which which um, cultural code is more adaptive to collective threat. Um, and actually, right as the pandemic was evolving, I was starting to get nervous. I, I wrote an uh, op-ed for the Boston Globe talking about this research. Um, and at one hand, I said, well, maybe I'm just, um, I need to be patient. Like maybe we will all tighten because like the theory predicts that under collective threat, groups tighten. And a lot of our modeling has shown that, including, you know, real events like 9-11 or World War II. Like we really tightened in the U.S. So, I, I thought, well, maybe that will happen here too. But the difference actually here is that we had a pandemic where we have an abstract germ. <laughs> you know, it's easy to to avoid it. Um, and um, what we found early on in the pandemic, we started to model this, is that loose cultures were taking longer with our computational models to coordinate and to cooperate as compared to tight cultures. And this model is we're predicting greater deaths in loose cultures. Uh, we collected a lot of data over the first year of covid 
and uh, ultimately published a paper in The Lancet Planetary Health that showed across 57 countries that loose cultures had five times the cases and almost nine times the deaths. Uh, And what was astonishing is that one of the factors that seems to explain some of this is that loose cultures had less fear across, you know, from the first hundred days from the first case and also uh, into the fall of 2020. Um, That we know that tightening happens only when people get kind of a consistent message about threat. Um, And this is one of the problems that we had is that the loose cultures were less coordinated had less fear, and as a result, you know, really didn't deal with the pandemic uh, nearly as well as tighter cultures. And so you can check out that paper on my website. It kind of goes through the details of both the data and also the modeling. I started to think about this really interesting idea of evolutionary mismatches. This comes from uh, evolutionary biology. And I started writing this year about cultural evolutionary mismatches. And the idea is that Certain traits can become really maladaptive when the environment changes really quickly. And loose traits are awesome for creativity and innovation. I live in the Silicon Valley. I can attest to that. It's just an incredibly innovative place. But these kind of traits may not be well matched to collective threat. And so we need to learn a lot from what what happened here because we are obviously dealing with lots of threats. Uh, And uh, one of the lessons we learned is that, look, we need to have a clear and consistent message about the level of threat. And we have to convince people that this is temporary, that tightening is is not going to be forever. It's a temporary, evolutionarily adaptive type of response. Um, and you're not all loose cultures got this wrong. Like New Zealand was a good example that was ambidextrous, we call it, like was able to tighten quickly and then loosen when the threat was diminished. And that's the kind of key is that we need to tighten to deal with threat. And in fact, it does actually reduce threat and be more ambidextrous in terms of um, how we think about uh, switching cultural gears because it can be done. It really was shown to be done in certain cultures. Um, likewise, like not all tight cultures got this right either. I mean, there's a general connection with what we found between tight, loose and COVID deaths and cases, but you know, some cultures prematurely loosened. And so prob- part of this issue is helping to understand where, how do we assess and communicate the level of threat that we're facing so that we can have this evolutionary adaptive response. Let's dig into that a little bit more. Can you talk about the relationship between the tightness and looseness and the synchronicity and the willingness to change that ambidextrousness that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think if you have lived in a context where there's a lot of threat, you come to realize that, you know, following rules is okay. You know, it's it's okay to sacrifice some liberty uh, for that constraint because, the ecology is so um, relentless, you know, when it comes to potential survival threats. I mean, it's interesting. I always give the example of Singapore. You know, why is it that, you know, bringing large quantities of gum is banned into in the country? Like, that just sounds preposterous from an American perspective. You know, I mean, it's... And punishable it, you just, by severe, you, you know, yeah, like, it's not, it's not... You know, the, the idea that you would legislate that sounds ridiculous. And, you know, if you've been to Singapore, I've been there many times you realize like that environment is hugely densely populated. We're talking like more than 20,000 people per square mile. That's a lot of mouths per capita. <laughs> and what happened in the late 80s is that people were chewing a lot of gum. And I guess when you chew gum, people like to throw it on the ground. And it was causing a really like a mess all over the, the city state. Uh, it was blocking sensors and elevators and on trains. And Lee Kuan Yew, 
who I think he was kind of a cross-cultural psychologist in his autobiography. You'll hear him talking a lot about threat. How, you know, there was a lot of potential threat in that region. They don't have a lot of natural resources. And so they had to develop, um, you know, a way to coordinate to survive that context. Um, now, not, not all rules have that kind of evolutionary basis, but I just think it helps us to step back and say, what if we were socialized in that context? Like maybe we would also be willing to give up gum. Um, so it's hard to, you know, kind of get outside of our cultural bubble. It's invisible. And we don't often recognize that the strengths of other cultures are are our own liabilities. Uh, And so it helps us to break out of that ethnocentrism once we understand why these differences potentially could could have evolved in the first place. So where does the dynamic between collectivist and individualistic cultures play in here? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, because there's many different aspects of culture. I'm, I'm just talking today about tight loose, but another really important cultural code that we've studied is how interdependent people feel with others. Uh, collectivist cultures have a lot of interdependence, especially with their families. Um, and, and they're willing to subjugate their goals for their families and for their family interests. Individualistic cultures tend to value privacy and self-reliance, and there's less connection to, to family embeddedness. Um, but Tychus is distinct from, from individual collectivism. For, for many years, we were studying East versus West differences. So they were kind of confounded. Like Japan, Singapore tends to be collectivistic and tight. Uh, and the U.S. tends to be individualistic and also loose. But you can kind of imagine these kind of off-diagonal countries that where we can start seeing some really cool differences. Like, for example, um, Brazil and many Latin American cultures we've studied, including Spain as well and Europe, uh, they tend to be collectivistic, pretty family-oriented, but they're rather loose. They're, they're very different than East Asian cultures. And, and likewise, uh, Austria and some parts of Germany tend to be individualistic, but they tend to veer tighter than other European countries. And so we can start thinking about how they're really distinct and, and start looking at um, them as you know separate but interrelated cultural codes that we need to study um, differently. Okay, so... We've been talking a lot about differences between countries and ways to understand the tightness or looseness uh, of those cultures. But I want to look at cultures within a country, and I want to take the United States and try to bring our listeners into this, uh, in, help our listeners read the the cultural landscape through the political, you know, morass that we we often we spend a lot of time on on this show. Um, so, for example, we frequently paint states as red or blue, right? What happens when we look at the country through the tight, loose lens of the who did you vote for question, right? And how can we think about the relationship between tightness and looseness when some cultures, some subcultures within the United States, you mentioned religious groups, right? How, how, um, how the evangelical community can be maybe tight in one sense, but have, have loose norms in another sense. And how there really isn't a moral valence that you can assign to the tightness or looseness in any in any given context. Can you can you help unpack that? Yeah, it's really a great question because you know we can kind of see tight loose as a quasi fractal pattern. The fractal pattern comes from physics. It's kind of a repeated pattern of uh, that recurs across different levels of analysis. So we could start looking at can we in a large heterogeneous culture like the U.S. Can we start studying um, the level of latitude and constraint at the state level? And that's what we did in a study we published in the Proceedings at National Academy of Sciences. We started to kind of rank order the U.S. 50 states on latitude and constraint. Some of the measures of this were like, how many dry counties are there in a state? How much punishment is there of children, a corporal punishment in schools? 
Um, these kinds of things, how religious are states? Because religion, you know, is really a, uh, something that can help tighten individuals because you feel monitored, you feel accountable, you know, whether by right, God or right. government, <laughs> you, you know, that's another yeah. force of like tightening. Uh, and these all, these measures all hung together and we can rank order culture, uh, the states in terms of tight loose. Then we can see, well, wait, do the same kind of factors like natural disasters, um, pathogens, scarcity, do they tend to predict this at the state level? And does it, do we also see this order openness trade-off at the state level? And that's exactly what we we found. We, I also talk about this in the book in a whole chapter on, you know, how Southern states, as well as some states in the Midwest, tend to lean tighter. Even if you can zoom into any state, you know, uh, like Louisiana leans tighter, but you, you zoom into New Orleans and you can see, you know, looseness. Or California leans t- uh, looser, but you can find some places that are tighter. Uh, but, you know, we found some a lot of homology similarity across the states in terms of how threatening these states have been in terms of disasters, like in terms of storms, let's say, or uh, other types of um, coordination issues that tend to happen more uh, in tight culture, tight states. Um, also, other factors like mobility is another really important driver of tight loose in the sense that when you have a lot of mobility, relational mobility, residential mobility, people tend to have more difficulty agreeing upon norms, so they tend to veer looser. Uh, the states that have a more diversity also tend, as far back as like 1850, tend to veer looser because it's, again, harder to agree upon norms. So, um, you know, we can assess this at the state level. And we also saw that, you know, there is some connection with order versus openness. There's less homelessness in tight states. Uh, there's more self-control in terms of like lower recreational drug abuse and alcoholism. But there's more creativity, patents per capita, artists per capita, uh, more tolerance, less discrimination in loose states. Uh, even I found out that loose states are more fun than <laughs> tight states, but tight states are more polite. Huh. And, you know, I've, I'm some, I'm a New Yorker. I'm flipping people off all the time. You know, we see this as kind of an affectionate gesture. And you don't want to do that when you're in the southern states. We, you know, we had gotten to some trouble doing that down in the south. So I think the more important issue is for me is that we can start thinking about how do we use this lens to analyze just stuff in our own backyard? I do want to say one one thing I, w- I will say is that to your point about all groups have tight and loose elements, I, I do think that even loose states and loose groups get tight around their core values. You know, they get mm. tight around tolerance. Say more about that. Tight around like, you know, the idea that we need to be open. Um, so, uh, and we can imagine that, you know, tight groups also have some loose elements as well. So, you know, that's also important to kind of yeah. diagnose is where are we in different domains? And we're starting to do that also, or, you know, in a lot of So there's work. a tightness in the imperative to be loose or open, in, in other words. Is that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think what we could see right now is a lot of the extremism we see here in the U.S. is like each group getting more and more tight about their own core values. Now, that that's not to say that, you know, we don't have a lot of similarity in the U.S. You know, we... I think that's one thing we really um, fail to see is that once we are in our own echo chambers, uh, which we know we are online, et cetera, we start to have more extreme stereotypes about other groups. And we don't realize that, wow, we're actually way more alike than we actually think we are. And we just did a study recently. This is a cross-cultural study, but it's kind of, uh, it's something that we could do here in the U.S. We're starting to do some research on this, but we used daily diaries to help people to get a window into each other's actual lives. People like to read diaries, apparently. So that's a good tool to research. Uh, And, you know, this is a study in the U.S. and Pakistan. And, you know, when we did some qualitative interviews, we asked 
Americans, what they thought of Pakistanis. They're like, oh, they're always in mosques and they're like totally constrained. They had extreme stereotypes. They are tighter, but they, they never thought about Pakistanis reading poetry or playing sports or listening to music or being online. So they had a very narrow sample of what they thought they were doing in their lives. And likewise, um, Pakistanis, you know, when they were reporting on what they thought of U.S. culture, they didn't just think the U.S. was loose. They thought the U.S., they thought Americans like were half naked all the time, <laughs> drinking beer for breakfast, Only in Berkeley. You know, calling the police on their, <laughs> yeah, that's right, really, right near me. Uh, yeah, I did see a, a whole bicycle crew in San Francisco, like totally butt naked the other day when I was there. So the truth be told, you, there are some people that you can find doing this. But, you know, they, they also thought that Americans were calling the police on their parents if they were too strict. You know, so they didn't just see us as loose. They saw us as extraordinarily loose. And we thought, well, you know, let's kind of like try to de-stereotype people and help them understand we're different, but we really don't realize how similar we are. And so... And we basically um, decided to use daily diaries. We, uh, we have unedited diaries coming from the U.S. Uh, Pakistanis assigned to either read American diaries for a week or every day or Pakistani diaries and vice versa. Americans reading American diaries or Pakistani diaries for a week. And we found some astonishing results. We published this last year where, you know, people thought they were different, but they started to realize, wow, we have a lot more shared reality and shared humanity than we ever thought. You know, Pakistanis thought Americans were way more moral after they read their diaries and Americans thought Pakistanis were way more warm uh, and had more freedom than they realized. So we want to try to use this daily diary technique to help even people within the U S who come from these very different cultures to understand that, yeah, we're different, but maybe we're, we have all these extreme stereotypes about each other and maybe this can help us to um, see. So each other's how humanity. would you use that in the, in, in the context of different, different groups within the United States? Well, we're starting a big study okay. right now. Um, and so, you know, I can report okay. back on yeah. this on the show yeah. <laughs> in a little while. But, you know, where we are randomly assigning uh, Republicans to read Democratic diaries and vice versa. Um, and again, they're really, the diaries can be different. We don't edit them, you know. Um, but we do see that people see that, wow, we have a lot of shared situations that we deal with. And we might be really uh, seeing people more on a, as individuals. Uh, and so this is the, this is what we're going to see. If we can use this here in the U S to deal with um, this polarization. Is fascinating. I can't, I would love to follow this study and I would love to have you back <laughs> to talk about it when you, when you're ready to report, report your findings, you it. but it, uh, you, you know, the, the device of a diary just seems like such a brilliant tool because you have that voyeuristic dimension of like reading yeah. somebody else's very personal thoughts that they've allowed you to like, they've, op- they've, they've welcomed you into that world. Right. As a part of this study, it was just, just yeah. that's a brilliant yeah. tool. I, I want to say, I do want to say that we kind of got to that technique kind of serendipitously. This is kind of a story of science and failure. And we basically started out this study by using a technique used in social psychology called contextual priming. We were showing people in Pakistan pictures of Americans, not just at parties, but also Americans dressed up at Mm. work or like actually having dinner with their families. Like God forbid, you know, (laughs) and we also showed Americans pictures of Pakistanis, not just in mosques, but also dancing and playing sports. And these are real pictures. We, you know, we, we got these locally in each context. We had to translate back, translate this into Urdu and and so forth. You know, Mm -hmm. it took some time. Then we did the study and um, we had people observing these people in context that they weren't used to seeing them in. uh, And we looked at their attitude change and it didn't work Mm. at all. Like they just didn't believe the pictures. They were like, (laughs) no, this can't be right. Like, yeah, this is fake news. So then we said, all right, we're going to really just get cut to the chase. 
let's use yeah. diaries. And then we thought, well, you know, let's also bring it on and have these diaries be unedited. So Americans were still waking up with their girlfriends, still drinking more. Pakistanis were more likely to be in mosques and have stricter teachers and et cetera. But that was the beauty of it is that we really we couldn't transport Pakistanis to the U.S. or vice versa, U.S. to Pakistan. But we can use this low budget technique yeah. to actually just ping them every day and have them read diary and, and you're measuring changes in attitudes so, as a result, correct? Yeah, exactly. And we're also measuring cultural perceived cultural distance. You know, how different is Pakistan and the U.S.? We asked people a couple of times in this study uh, and that cultural distance got reduced as they were reading these wow. diaries. Um, and so, again, they all commented, yeah, we're, def- we're definitely yeah. different, but we're way less different than yeah. we thought we were. So let's hope that works here. You know, yeah. that's yeah, that's that's the hope. Speaking of, about differences, um, differences between conservatives and Republicans, how can we think about that? What I'm getting at is how do we how do we look at the different political factions? When you look at the political landscape in the U.S. Um, right now, especially our audience looks around and sees there's there's one big fight right now, and the big fight is whether or not we're going to continue to be a democracy. And that seems that is yeah. that's like the that's the whole shebang, and then everything else is sort of yeah. you know subsidiary to that. Yeah. When you when you look around through this lens. What are some of the things that don't comport to conventional wisdom about the current U.S. political dynamic and how divided we are and and, and the characteristics that are often applied to to all of the various groups, whether it's the, you know, the center left, the far left, the center right, the far right, to the extent that those labels are even useful anymore? How can we read the landscape in a in a in a tight and loose way and understand maybe the origins of some of these culture wars? Yeah, I think this is such a great question. And, you know, part of the logic of tight loose has to do with threat, as I said. And I think it's something that we need to talk more about in this country is objective threat and manufactured threat. Because whether it's real or imagined, when people feel threatened, uh, they tend to want tighter rules. And they also want stronger leaders. They want people who are calling the shots. That's something we found around the world. Like tight cultures, when you ask people, what characteristics contribute to being an outstanding leader? The answer to that question is very different. When you come from cultures where there's a lot of threat, people like these kind of independent, confident leaders. It's probably adaptive in a context where, you know, you need to make quick decisions. That's also the case in organizations that have a lot of safety and um, physical threat uh, issues to contend with. Uh, loose cultures have a very different answer to that question. Um, they don't like those kind of leaders. They like the charismatic, visionary, change-oriented leaders And I think we need to stop and think about, you know, um, the groups that feel really threatened in the U.S. and how to tackle those perceptions of threat. As I mentioned, some of them can be real. Some of them can be manufactured. Um, You know, what we found before the 2016 election is when we asked people about perceived threat, um, things like how threatened do you feel by ISIS, by Iran, um, by immigration and so forth, um, those perceptions um, were related to people feeling that the U.S. was too loose, that like we need to tighten up. We need stricter rules. This is an evolutionary kind of hunch that people have. And that in turn was predictive of voting for Trump in the primary 
Uh, this is above and beyond conservatism. So it's really around like issues of threat. Now, with that said, I, I will say, and I do think that there are certainly groups in the U.S., um, particularly, as you know, the working class, um, that because of AI um, are really feeling extraordinarily threatened. Um, and these are groups, the working class in our data are also tend to veer tighter. They're, you know, they're socialized by their parents because they could fall into poverty to have stricter rules. They live in da- more dangerous neighborhoods. They are in occupations where there's more physical threat and where there's less discretion. So they're already kind of geared toward tightness and they look around their world and thinking it's collapsing. That it's, And this uh, leads to this desire tightness. Um, and, you know, so part of the issue, I think, is that we really need to deal with objective threat of certain groups uh, more directly. And I, I say that because, you know, we're a loose culture and we already have this myth of like, you know, people can just get there on their own. The American dream, you work hard, you'll just deal with it and you'll get there. Other cultures like Germany, that's also individualistic, has much more of a safety net for the working class. There's much more structures and plays to help people um, to get certificates that might translate across different organizations. So we have a real problem with um, AI revolution. And, and, and we need, as in the book I talk about, we need more connections between government, local educational context, local organizations as partners. And this happening in some places. I talk about some examples, but in general, we need to deal with some objective threat. You know, we have a ton of like really like unbelievable like manufactured threat that we're really contending with. That's probably our most important thing we have to deal with. Um, I was looking at this in terms of immigration. I published an op-ed in the LA Times where it's like we're studying just how much people misperceive immigration, even illegal immigration, how much of it there is. Even like what immigrants are doing, they're far more rule abiding than native citizens. There's so many myths around immigration that's causing people to feel threatened. And this is tightening these groups. So we need some massive uh, calibration on threat. Uh, I want to mention, you know, recently we just published a new dictionary, linguistic dictionary to detect threat. Uh, because it's all around us. It's on social media. It's, you know, our leaders use it some much more than others. Uh, And so why not quantify it? Why not look to see like who is using this language? How is it affecting our brain and our cultural shifts in terms of tightness um, and conservatism and even the stock market? And that's what we found. We found that we can rely, we partnered with some computational linguistics folks and we developed a dictionary that now can reliably diagnose threat. We can also see how contagious it is. Like in tweets that have threatening language, uh, they're far more contagious. They get retweeted far more often than tweets that don't have it. So I think we need to much more um, focus. We need a, let's just say a council of threat advisors. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like we have all these economic advisors. We need people that are helping to deal with real and manufactured threat because it has this predictive power of tightening individuals and voting for people they think that will return us to a tight social order. So is it is there like a scorecard for events? I mean, how do you, how do you what is the what is the output? What is the quantitative output? Yeah, so it's on the, the it's on my website. It's a threatometer. Uh and you know, it's a basically comprised of 240 words. It's in English. Uh you can analyze any text for the percentage of words that are using this kind of language. And it's not about specific um like conflicts or it's, it's all about uh, the psychology of that. So it includes words like crisis and fear, threat, of course, um, and many other words. And um, what we did was we tracked threat in a hundred years, the last hundred years in all the newspapers in the United States. Uh, and we looked at how it predicted shifts in tightening in collectivism to that point you asked earlier, group orientation, but also how it predicted like anti-immigration sentiment 
how are, uh, even things like rallying around the flag, like pres- presidential support, conservative shifts. And we also looked at how it predicted shifts in the stock market and the NASDAQ and S&P and also um, innovation. Um, this is with, uh, several of my grad students. Um, and uh, we found, you know, some really clear evidence that threatening language, again, whether real or perceived, has really important impact on our collective shifts uh, in this country. So, um, you know, and I think it could be used in a lot of other ways. We can look online to see like what, you know, who is using this language and for what purpose. And when you're looking through your feed, how much threatening language are you being exposed to? You know, I would love to have my kids just, you know, (laughs) these kids, poor kids have been having to hear about this stuff for their their whole (laughs) lives, you know, but you know, there, I would like them to see like, wait, like threat affects our neural you know, yeah. circuitry and it affects our yeah. behavior. So why not figure out how much of it you're being exposed to? We can also look at online radicalization, like how much are groups using threat uh, to activate that desire tightening? Uh, and we're starting to do some work on that. We can look at how CEOs and other uh, leaders use of threat predicts things that are happening yeah. in the market and how stakeholders react to that. Uh, in the paper, we also quantify U.S. presidents and how much threatening talk they used in all their major wow. speeches. Uh, so you could see that. Yeah, you could see that in the in the paper as well. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting method because, you know, culture, as I said, it's invisible. You can't exactly survey people right. nonstop about these things, but we need more unobtrusive measures, these kind of windows into threat that come through language in this case. Um, it's only in English, but we plan to be, you know, kind of validate this in other contexts too, because this is not just a U.S. problem with, you know, working class and other um, shifts toward populist leaders. I think it's, they know the recipe. They, you know, they target groups that are already threatened and they amp up the threatening talk <laughs> And then they say, hey, I can solve this problem. I'm going to return us to a tight order. And in some cases, that train has left. And so we have to be able to counter those narratives. This is, our listeners are, are going to be just loving this conversation because you've, <laughs> you've pulled on two other threads, uh, multi, threads like multi-conversation threads uh, here that we, we continue to have on the show about misinformation and disinformation. Uh, we just had a fascinating discussion about deep fakes recently um, and the way those are about to sort of transform our information environment. But also you mentioned the working class and we've talked a lot recently about how the coalitions that make up both of the major parties in the United States are shifting. And one of the dynamics is that the working class is gravitating toward the Republican Party. The Democratic Party now is becoming much whiter, more educated, more affluent. And the Republican Party is attracting the working class that you just described as feeling under threat. And I think um, I, th- I think we've covered it well, but I just want to make that connection so that people can see this from a completely different lens, sort of psycholo- culturally what's happening here. It isn't just political, right? Um, there's, there's, there's something deeper happening here. I think, you, I think you explained that shift really well. If there's more you want to say about it. Yeah. A lot of times we think about class, we think about pocketbooks, we think about money. And psychologists are starting to study, you know, how do the cultures of class vary? Um, one way they vary is that uh, working class tends to be more family oriented because they need to cooperate. They don't have a safety net to just kind of do your own thing. They're also tighter in our data. They like more rules. And we know what, when we bring uh, people into the lab that we ask about their environments, they feel far more threatened, particularly on economic threats and danger. 
Um, so they're constantly experiencing potential threats. Uh, they are worried about falling into hard living, which is poverty. Uh, and so the idea is that stricter rules help you to survive those kind of contexts. And parents get that kind of memo implicitly. You know, the working class parents that we study uh, feel acutely threatened and they start thinking about rules like their kids need rules. Um, and and they know that their kids are likely to be in contexts where they don't have a lot of discretion in manufacturing, for example, versus in like, you know, management. And from very early age, they're training their kids, um, again, to avoid hard living, to follow the rules. And in fact, we've given these surveys out, again, uh, kind of implicit measures. And we say, think about, you know, what comes up in your mind when I say follow the rules. Now, if you ask like mainstream Americans that question, they'll probably say negative things like goody two shoes. This is what we found. Like, you know, really like wimpy. You know, you go to a bookstore, you find all sorts of books on like break the rules. You know, um, I found a book for children that was on like how to create anarchy. I mean, it's just a very, very, like, it's on my bookshelf. It's a very strong cultural code that like, no, we are not rule followers. If you ask that same question to working class adults, they have very different answers to that. We've coded their responses. They're far more positive about rules, structure, wow. you know, safety. They, they're helpful rules. And that's a very different psychology. You think about upper class individuals, they have yeah. a safety net you break the rules, if you screw up, you got a safety net. Uh, and whereas working class parents and children don't, you know, in one study that we did, this is, uh, I think speaks to how ingrained this becomes. We brought three-year-olds into the lab. This is with my student, Jesse Harrington. And we, we couldn't exactly ask them, you know, what do you think about rules? But we could study how they react to puppets that they're playing with that wind up breaking the rules during these games. So they, they're playing with these puppets and Max the Puppet, and they are playing different games. This is called a game of daxing. It has new rules. And then also in the middle of the experiment, the puppet starts breaking the rules and like <laughs> announcing like I'm playing the, the game right. And we brought working class and uh, middle class kids into the lab to do this. And we can simply videotape them and see how do they react to this. And, you know, the, the upper class kids start laughing at the puppet more. They're much less likely to protest against the puppet. Uh, mm. So this is the kind of work that we're doing. We're now a kind of um, doing more work on this also to see how early do these differences arise. But this is all to say that we can look at social class far beyond just our pocketbooks, but in terms of culture. So it's not really surprising that as the working class is feeling more threatened yeah. in yeah. real threat, that they're attracted to leaders who are telling them, hey, guys, like we're going to go back to yeah. a tight order, a order that you understand. Um, and that narrative is very attractive in that context. I want to be mindful of our time and open one one other uh, thread here before we go, which is sort of now now you've given us a, a really great primer on what social norms are, how tightness and looseness impacts our actions and the actions of others. I want to I want to think about how we put this into action ourselves to solve problems and how can people understand if they're part of or predisposed to being in a tight or loose culture themselves or in what context they are or aren't, how you can be more conscious of that yourself. And how, how do we use this to solve problems? How do we use this to move beyond the, okay, well, we're all different and we have different values and beliefs, so there's nothing we can do about it mindset that people often associate with politics is messy and chaotic and you just have to you know, fight to win. Yeah. Um, what is the right balance between tight and loose and what should we be striving for? And um, I lay all of that at your feet to... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, 
two things I want to mention. One is that um, I think it's really important to start with ourselves. Like, where are we in the tight, loose mindset continuum? Because culture starts with individuals. Um, and on my website, there's a tight, loose mindset quiz that people can take. It's based on data we published in the science paper I was mentioning um, that looked at tight, loose around the world. I, I also draw on Dahlia Litwick's nice metaphor of, are you a chaos Muppet or are you an order <laughs> Muppet? Like, you know, are you someone that likes a lot of rules and, you know, don't mind rules and like structure and manage your impulses, uh, the kind of Kermit the Frog and birds of the world? Are you more of a chaos Muppet? Are you someone who doesn't notice rules as much, maybe a little bit um, risk-taking in orientation, quasi-impulsive, but tolerant of ambiguity? Um, those are the chaos Muppets, you know, the kind of cookie monster and, uh, you know, um, animal. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> now, we all, we all, as I mentioned, we can all tighten or loosen Easily, depending on the context. Most of us, you know, kind of tighten up when we're in symphonies and we loosen up when we're in parties. So it's not a matter of like either or, but we tend to have a default based on our own cultures, our own histories, our own occupations that are also another chronic prime for, for tight loose. So, so I would, you know, ask your, you know, if your audience, if they're interested, take the quiz. And also it helps us to think about how we're different than people around us, including our spouses, our kids, our colleagues and, and the kind of conflicts that come up from a tight loose mindset. Um, they follow the same order openness kind of trade-off at the individual level. Uh, I, I say, truth be told, I, ve- I veer moderately loose and I'm an academic. Uh, my husband is in the Midwest. He's a lawyer. He veers moderately tight. <laughs> um, and, you know, he gets deeply disturbed by how I load the dishwasher. I'm going to be honest. You know, <laughs> To him, this is like a nightmare, you know. And, you know, we have to negotiate. I mean, I guess the other thing I would say is we have to negotiate these things. You know, we invented social norms. We can negotiate them in our households and organizations and in our own, our own countries. Uh, and we do that, by the way. It sounds a little cheesy, but we sort of think about what domains do we need to be tight and right. loose in. And like any good negotiation, I study negotiation, I teach it at Stanford. Like you need to choose your priorities. You can't have everything. So what's your priority domain in terms of your mindset? And then kind of just get to the negotiation table with your colleagues, your spouse, and et cetera. So it's, first of all, just understanding yourself. It helps us to kind of reinterpret some of the conflicts we have and find them to be a little more, you know, understandable. Why does your partner or your friends have a tighter loose mindset? Like what about their histories might've produced that? That yeah. makes sense that yeah. we can be a little less, uh, more, we can be more understanding, more empathic. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that um, a lot of the work we're doing now in organizations around tight loose, which we didn't get to talk about, but we can also classify organizations and units and organizations in terms of how strict or permissive they are, has a very similar psychology in terms of threat and trade-offs. Um, but what we know is that in any social system, the more extreme you get, the more extremely tight or the extremely loose, those are both systems that are really problematic um, for different reasons. I talked about that thought experiment of like normless world. That's what it looks like to be in an extraordinarily loose context. It starts to get really chaotic and really unpredictable. Um, and it's, it's not stable. People in those contexts really need rules. And so they start really liking the strict rules. Um, vice versa, when you're in a really super tight context, when it involves to be too tight, whether it's an organization, a nation or household, um, that can feel really repressive and people want to escape from that. And we've linked these extremes at the national level to higher suicide, to lower well-being, um, to more depression. So the trick here is that we need to be identifying the extremes of tight and loose and we need to pivot and we can pivot. Um, if we're getting super loose, we need to insert some accountability into that system um, we call this structured looseness. Um, if we're super tight, we need to insert some flexibility into that system. Um, 
we call this flexible tightness. Uh, I work with the military that kind of falls uh, on those yeah. lines, like, you know, needs to veer tight, but like wants to be more innovative. And we could start thinking about how do we insert some discretion into non-safety domains into a tight context. Um, I, I think the trick in my view is to have, to aim to have both empowerment that comes right. from looseness and latitude, but also felt accountability that comes from tightness. As soon as we start deviating from that, those two kind of uh, psychological states, we might get yeah. into trouble <laughs> yeah. for different reasons. And again, all groups have to veer tight and loose for good reasons. So we might have different weights on empowerment and accountability, but systems need some dosage of both, including uh, on yeah. social media. Uh, and we can talk about that. I know, you know, for your, uh, yeah. you, want, you wanted to talk about something for your yeah. plus segment. And I'd be happy to talk about how we're starting to develop interventions to get the right um, Goldilocks, we might call it, of tight and loose uh, on social media. Michelle Gafond, thank you for being here. You're welcome back anytime. I follow your work uh, re- religiously. And maybe next time when you come back, we can talk about the kind of trouble that we can get into when we get too tight or too loose. And then, and then, uh, God, there's so much more we can talk about. Before we go, where can everybody find you on the internet? Uh, sure. It's, uh, my website is just michellegelfand.com. Uh, and um, I would love to hear from you listeners. Like send in your tight, loose stories. Uh, my email is uh, on my website and there's a place to send in um, questions, queries, anything. You know, I, I'm, would love to connect. I mean, I, I really think it's important. This is why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for my dad, Marty from Brooklyn. We yeah. talked about in the early yeah. part of the segment because I feel like academics, including myself, you know, we we are often trapped in the ivory tower, and we need to get out and and communicate what we're doing because not only is it important for people to know what we're doing, but we need to know what people think so we can design new yeah. research that will answer yeah. questions that people have. So I'm I, I'm often getting ideas from people for new research ideas. Um, and um, that's it's a great two-way street. Excellent. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.